Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. On her 120-acre homestead high in the Colorado Rockies, writer Pam Houston learns what it means to care for a piece of land and the creatures on it. Elk calves and bluebirds mark the changing seasons. Winter temperatures drop to 35 below, and lightning sparks a 110,000-acre wildfire, threatening her century-old barn and all its inhabitants. And in her book, her memoir, Deep Creek, she tells us about this and uh, how the ranch becomes her sanctuary, a place where she discovers how the natural world has mothered and healed her after a childhood of horrific parental abuse and neglect. Uh, we are going to be talking with uh, Pam Houston on the program today. She's coming to Logan for a Riders in the Woods event with the Stokes Nature Center. That's tomorrow, 7 to 9 p.m. at the Stokes Nature Center, which is 2696 East Highway 89, just up Logan Canyon. Uh, she'll be in conversation with UPR's Ellis Julen. And the event is free. It's outside, and so safer uh, for the COVID. And uh, you can purchase a copy of Deep Creek uh, there as well. Pam Houston's author, in addition to Deep Creek, of Contents May Have Shifted and Sighthound. Uh, two collections of short stories, Cowboys Are My Weakness and Waltzing the Cat, and a collection of essays, a little more about me. Uh, most recently, with Amy Irvine. Uh, the book is Airmail, Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and uh, Place. Pam Houston, uh, pleasure to welcome you back to Access Utah. Thank you. Thank you for having me back, Tom. I, I uh, really enjoy your interviews. Uh, so for those who, d- who don't know uh, your, your story and, and the Deep Creek story, I wonder if you could, maybe we could start there. Um, it's, I think it's worth recounting. Uh, how, how, <laughs> sure. how, did you, how did you end up on this ranch? Well, um, I was in graduate school, in fact, at the University of Utah, uh, in creative writing, getting working on my PhD, and I was just about done. And my dissertation at the U was the collection of short stories, which became Cowboys and My Weakness. And I was lucky enough to sell it uh, to W.W. Norton for $21,000, which to me at the time as a graduate student who was earning about $4,500 a year as a TA seemed like an immense amount of money. It seemed like maybe more money than I would ever have. And when my agent gave me the check, she said, don't spend it all on hiking boots because she knew me and knew, uh, <laughs> knew what I was apt to do. And so I took that advice very seriously. And when school was over, I got in my car and I drove around the West looking for a place to put that money down, a place to call home, which I had never really had in my life. And I looked lots of places, Idaho and Utah and Wyoming and Montana. Um, But I wound up in this little town called Creed, which the writers Antonia Nelson and Robert Boswell had told me about. They said, check out Creed. We heard it was cool. That was the big recommendation. And I got to Creed after looking at property all over the West, after giving readings in tiny independent bookstores in mountain towns all over the West, which are still the people who sell my books. You know, that was when I established those relationships. And I got shown this ranch, this beautiful 120-acre ranch in, uh, in a valley, in the Rio Grande Valley, the upper, upper Rio Grande Valley, ringed all around by 12,000-foot mountains. Um, it was the most beautiful piece of land I'd ever seen. It also happened to be the third week of September, as a matter of fact. So you know what the 
aspen trees were doing at that altitude, which is 9,000 feet, you know, it was the most beautiful moment of a beautiful spot of the year. And um, the ranch, I had this $21,000. And that $21,000 represented just about 5% down of what the asking price of this ranch was. And the price had just been reduced. And I was just out of grad school. I didn't have a job. Um, I was starting a new book, but I hadn't sold it yet. So I basically had no income. I was more or less living in my car. And this ranch was the money I had in the world um, was about 5% down. And the realtor said about Donna Blair, who was the widow who was selling the ranch, she said, uh, or he said, the realtor said, I think, I think Donna Blair is going to like the idea of you. So why don't you give me a copy of Cowboys Are My Weakness and your $21,000 and I'll see what I can do. And a few days later, Donna Blair sold me the ranch for 4.7% down and a signed hardcover of my book of short stories. And she carried the note herself, most importantly, because nobody in the world should have or would have lent me the money. So she carried the note and... Um, she believed in me for whatever reason, you know, we hadn't met, but she read my book and I was very young and fresh out of grad school, but I thought, well, if she believes in me, maybe I can believe in myself. And, you know, it has turned out to be the biggest decision of my life. You know, I, I have since spent the last now almost 30 years growing up there and being responsible to something and making my payments no matter what. And, you know, learning about fire and ice and all those things you mentioned. So it was a, it was a kind of crazy thing to do that turned into the story of a life. Yeah, that's amazing. I love that part of it. The, the realtor says she's going to like the idea of you. What, yeah. what, what do you think that was? What, what do you think that would have appealed to her? Well, I think... Um, I think a woman, you know, she was a strong woman. She is a strong woman. She's still alive. She, she's a strong woman. Uh, she had a mysterious job, Donna Blair. I used to say, you know, what's new? And she'd say something like, well, I just got back from Yemen. And I'd say, what were you doing there? And she'd say, oh, this and that. You know? <laughs> so I don't know. Um, I think it appealed to her that I wasn't afraid to live at the end of a 12-mile dirt road at 9,000 feet. Um, I think she liked the fact that I was an artist. I think she liked the fact that I was a single woman who wanted to be as close to the wilderness as I could. I I can't really say. I mean, I, I, I guess, um, you know, where I come from, which is New Jersey, uh, I think she thought I had chutzpah. And, um, and I, and I and I did, in fact. <laughs> she was right about that. Because over the next many years, I had to learn how to do a lot of things. I mean, I did grow up in New Jersey. I thought water came out of the wall, you know, hot water. Like, I didn't understand really how anything worked. And so I had to learn about sweeping my own chimney and fixing my own fence and giving animals shots in the middle of the night and, you know, when they were sick and all kinds of, you know, the, the, the things I didn't know. Um, I, I say in the book, the only thing longer than the list of the things I didn't know were the things I didn't even know I didn't know yet. You know, it was it was a, a very steep learning curve. 
And, and probably good you didn't know some things before you went in, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. I might not have gone for it. Yeah. I mean, even at the time, I recognized it as a kind of insane thing to do, but um, I was a bit of an adrenaline junkie back then. You know, I, I was a river guide and a hunting guide. That's how I was making my living in the summers during graduate school. And, you know, I loved whitewater and I loved, you know, skiing out of bounds and all those kinds of things. And I think in a way, buying the ranch, I mean, I'd like to believe I, some inner wisdom spoke and, and maybe it did. But I think part of it was just, okay, this is a crazy thing that I'll never be able to pull off. So let's try it, you know. Uh, so uh, tell us a bit about uh, more about uh, describe the, the the ranch. It's twelve miles down a down a road, pretty isolated. Nine thousand feet. That's up pretty high. Yeah, the 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 pasture is nine thousand feet, and then the mountains, which of course are not on my property, rise to twelve thousand feet around it. As I found out in the fire um, during the West Fork fire, which was the largest fire in history in that quadrant of Colorado in 2013. You know, it's 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 really in a meadow, and it's fairly protected um, from fire because it's out. It sits out by itself. There are aspen trees on the border of the property, and then of course there's lots of spruce trees that climb the mountains. But my property is mostly mostly meadow, mostly pasture, and um, it has a little creek running through it, and the Rio Grande touches it in the front of the property. So it's just it's ringed around by these protective mountains. It just, it's, it's very nestled in a corner of a, of a giant park, um, which has, you know, four or five other ranches in it. Uh, most of which, including mine are now in a land trust. So they're protected and they won't be subdivided. Um, it's just a beautiful bend of the Rio Grande river, uh, with, with 12,000 foot mountains all around it. Hmm. What kinds of things did you have to learn? Um, we've talked about this before, but as a, a refresher, and you write about it in, in Deep Creek, there, there are lot, a lot of things you didn't know you didn't know, right? Uh, <laughs> maybe select right. a couple, two or three things that, uh, you know, practical things that you had to learn. Well, one thing I had to learn is, you know, I was there about three years, maybe, <clears throat> and um, someone came to visit and said, now, when was the last time you put that UV protector on your log? <laughs> and, and I was like, well, okay, check, UV protector. And sure enough, at 9,000 feet, as probably a lot of your listeners know, um, if you don't coat your logs, if you live in a log house and you don't coat your logs every year <clears throat> or roughly every year, they um, they start to the, – the, solar, the UV starts to eat them away. So I learned that I have to, you know, put UV protector on every log every year. And that's a funny thing because if you buy that, you know, my life became trips to the hardware store, multiple trips to the hardware store for one task. What I learned is like usually about the third time you go to the hardware store, you get the right thing. And uh, the funny thing about the UV protector is that it says, it can't be put on if the temperature is going to drop to 40 degrees within 24 hours, which is almost never the case where I live, because at that elevation, we get under 40 almost every night of the year. Or if it's going to encounter dew or frost or rain. So it was just one of these funny things. It was like there was no way to follow the directions, but my 
you know, my solution just became to slap on a bunch of UV protector and hope for the best. And there were many, many things that, that, that fit that category. Um, sweeping my own chimney was a, a, a challenge. Um, because we don't have any chimney sweeps in any of the counties near me. Um, raising Icelandic sheep, um, who, who, who get up to a lot of trouble. They're, they're the, <laughs> the wildest, sort of hardiest sheep. They're good at fending off predators, but they, they like to ram things. <laughs> they like to break things. So learning how to manage my rams in my Icelandic sheep herd, that was a whole, you know, that... That could be, you know, many years of an education. Uh, there was just so many things. I mean, honestly, we could spend the rest of the hour with me talking about things I didn't know how to do yeah. and um, that I had to learn. Um, I wonder, for uh, a New Jersey girl uh, coming out west, and I think you've written, you've said that you you know, immediately fell in love with, with, with the West. Did, Talk about that before we talk about, I want to have you talk about this specific place, you know, your ranch, but talk about the West in general. What, what is it about the West that appealed to you? Yeah, well, that's definitely the case. I came out um, first before graduate school. I lived in Winter Park, Colorado. I was a ski bum after college and worked about seven jobs so I could ski a hundred days a year. And I just fell so in love specifically with um Well, it sounds like we've lost uh, Pam Houston. Let's go to a break and uh, we'll get her back on the line. The writer Pam Houston, author of Deep Creek and many other books, is uh, coming to uh, Logan. She'll be uh, at an event for the Stokes Nature Center. And uh, that's in their Riders in the Woods uh, events. That'll be tomorrow evening, 7 to 9 p.m. at the Stokes Nature Center. It's up uh, Logan uh, Canyon. And she'll be in conversation with UPR's Ellis Julin. The event is free. It's outside, so a bit safer with with the pandemic. And uh, that is tomorrow evening, 7 to 9 free event. More with Pam Houston, hopefully, following this break. During World War II, a number of Japanese Americans were sent to relocation camps and prison. Upon their release, they became outcasts. What happens if I decide that I'm not Japanese after all? That I'm an American? I will die. No, No Boy by Ken Narasaki. Adapted from the novel by John Okada. Next time on L.A. Theatre Works. Tune in Friday night at 9 here on Utah Public Radio. For decades, UPR has aimed to bring people together through the power of public radio, inspiring you with culture and the arts, offering an exceptional local and regional focus, guided by an inclusive community-first commitment. Now we ask you to commit to UPR with an important donation of support. Next week, we begin our fall membership drive. This week, we're asking you to give early. Members, people like you and me, are who power this station. Become a sustainer today at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utime. Tom Williams, our guest for the hour, is the writer Pam Houston. She's author of the memoir Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. Uh, a couple of novels, uh, collections of short stories, including Cowboys Are My Weakness. Uh, she teaches in the Low Res MFA program at the Institute of American Indian Arts. 
and is a professor of English at UC Davis, co-founder and creative director of literary nonprofit Writing by Writers. And she lives at 9,000 feet above sea level near the headwaters of the Rio Grande, and we've been talking about her uh, her place uh, there. Uh, so, uh, Pam Houston, we've got you back on the line. Yes, sorry about that. Okay. Um, sounds like there's a little bit of an echo. Oh, really? You have... Uh, yeah, I don't know if you have a radio uh, partially up or something. I don't. I don't okay. have a thing. Okay. Well, we'll. we'll uh, I'm not hearing it now. So, uh, so uh, before uh, the break, there we were. Uh, you were talking about uh, growing up in Jersey, coming out west, and the appeal of of the west. Yeah, um, I I was just about to say that that you know it it was honestly the the Red Rock country of Southern Utah that. It blew my mind, you know, and I've written about this a lot in earlier books. It was, you know, I, I love the mountains. The first place I saw when I came out west was the Wind Rivers in Wyoming, and they were gorgeous. But when I got down to southern Utah and saw the canyon country, I just couldn't, like, it, it sparked something in my imagination. And I thought, you know, you could just set people down, set characters down here and, you know, amazing things would happen to them. You know, it, I, I feel like coming out with in a certain way made me a writer. It opened something up in me. I mean, I was obviously writing before that, but it it opened something up in me that I wanted to bear witness and I knew the landscape would help me. You know, like it was just a, it was just a click. It was an artistic click in when I saw um, on Southern Utah. And that's why I decided to go to graduate school in Utah and, um, but also, you know, the mountains of Colorado and the whole Four Corners area, all of that. I just, it just felt like the place I was meant to be, you know, and I have that feeling. I've been lucky enough to travel around the world and I have that feeling when I get set down in certain, I would say like young, arid mountain ranges and canyons. I remember the first time I got to go to Tibet and I landed in the airport at Tibet and it was that same feeling. So it was just like, oh, I'm home, you know, and the the mountains are very similar to the mountains of, you know, the desert southwest. And and I just think, you know, whatever, I must have lived lives in the desert southwest before or there's something about the quality of the air and the sky. But something just makes my whole body relax when I'm there. Hmm. Uh, so the, your ranch, 9,000 feet, we've had you told the story of how you came to purchase that, uh, five per, less than 5% down. Um, how quickly did that become home? Um, I think very quickly. I, I hadn't had a home prior to that. You know, I, um, I do talk in the ranch about my childhood home. My parents were both alcoholics and my dad was violent, and he broke my leg when I was four, and I spent that year in a body cast. And so I never felt safe at home. You know, it, it, there, were, there were good things about my parents. There was good things about my upbringing. Um, but I certainly never felt relaxed or safe in my childhood home. And, you know, I, you heard when I was describing the ranch, it just felt so safe. It feels so safe, even as I describe it now. I describe it in the book as this, like, lucky horseshoe of mountains keeping me safe, and that's how it feels. I've got the river on one side. I've got the mountains on three other sides. I've got all that beauty all around. I mean, I, I, I don't know that it ever didn't feel like home. I mean, I think for the first 10 years, I was so afraid I wasn't going to be able to pay for it. 
that I was afraid of losing it, but that's not the same as it feeling like home. You know, it, it, it really feels um, like the place in the world that I am at ease. I mean, I can, I, I, I'm sort of a, I'm sort of a type A, I'm kind of a workaholic, but when I get there and I sit on the porch and I can look at the mountains, like, like I said, it's just some kind of anxiety or tension just drains out of my body. It's really, really good ground. You know, it happens to be beautiful, but it's also just ground that's full of positive energy. How important was this place um, in in healing from trauma? You, you do talk about, about this in, in the memoir, right? Yes. Um, well, I think it was very important. I think it was very important to feel like I had a home that I was in charge of, where I called the shots, you know, um, and, you know, who did I call the shots for? Well, me and my dog, you know, but, um, but, you know, that just, it was mine, that every decision was mine. Um, and I mean, one thing about Creed, because it's in the middle of nowhere, you know, I've had therapy and I've had, um, healing, you know, acupuncture, body work, all those kinds of things. And I have to kind of travel for those because we don't have a lot of that in Creed. Um, but, the ranch itself and nature, you know, I mean, at some point I realized that even as a little kid in the absence of good parenting and good mothering, I really did turn to the earth. You know, I even back in New Jersey and back in Pennsylvania, I would take walks in the woods or when we went to the beach, I would say goodbye to every wave for like an hour, you know, like I was always, looking to the natural world, be it the ocean or just a walk in a flower garden or a walk through the woods as a place of solace and a place of comfort and a place of healing. And even to this day, if I am really sad, like several times during COVID when I lost people that I know, um, I'll go outside and I'll just curl up under a tree and just feel the earth, you know, just feel the ground. And that really feels comforting to me. And I think I did that as a very young child. And I did it all the way through my childhood where I would kind of let the ground, let the earth, let a tree, you know, comfort me. And I mean, that may sound a little woo, but it's, it's really what I do. You know, it's because I really do feel like I was mothered by the natural world. And that became ever more evident to me when I moved out West and moved to the ranch. This is that has been a through line in your life. I think your your mother apparently uh, would would say, "I don't want to see you until dinner," right? And so you'd be out. Yeah, you'd be outside, <laughs> yeah. which I guess was right. not was not a bad thing for you. You you enjoyed it. No, that's how I end the book, and I really mean it in a nice way. You know, <laughs> like I really do. Like, I mean, she didn't. She never wanted kids, and um. She was adamant that I not have kids, and I haven't. I have taken her advice. Um, she hated being a mom, and she was upfront about that, which I guess in a certain way is, you know, better than pretending. Um, I've thought a lot about that. But she, but she did say, you know, every day, I don't want to see you till dinner. And, and the last line of the book is, uh, my mother always said, I don't want to see you till dinner. And with those words, she freed me to go out and love the earth. And that's the truth, you know. 
I mean that in the best way possible because she did, you know, and, and I'm always happy outside. I'm always comfortable outside. Um, I always feel, you know, like I'm home when I'm outside, really, no matter what the landscape is. And, and in a certain way, that's because she didn't want me around and she sent me out and I, and I went and found spots that felt good. And I've been doing that all my life. Uh, and still do, I expect. I do. Yeah. I do. Um, I want to have you react to, to something. I've I've seen you say this uh, a couple of times. Uh, you know, it's, it's um, more than once. Let me just uh, quote you. Um, mm-hmm. If you live long enough, you quit chasing the things that hurt you, and you eventually learn to hear the sound of your own voice. Mm-hmm. You could expand on that a little bit. And how, and how does that happen? Well, um, I mean, I think, I, I think for women, especially, I mean, I don't, I should just talk for myself, but I do think, um, you know, menopause <laughs> is a thing that, that makes you hear your own voice. I think, you know, I think there's a lot of life stages and I noticed this in my friends, but it's certainly true about me where we're trying to please, we're trying to please, we're trying to please. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get to a certain age. I mean, I'm going to be 60. Um, I'm going to be 60 in January. And um, and I feel like that's a kind of accomplishment in the world as it is. And I, I, um, and at 60, you know, I feel like an elder. And I feel like I want to tell young women, you know, what you think matters what you feel matters, what you believe matters, what you say matters. I mean, a big part of my life right now is about mentoring young writers, both men and women. Um, I teach, as you mentioned, at the Institute of American Indian Arts, so mentoring voices that haven't been heard as much as they should have. And and all that's so important to me, to say your story matters, your story matters. You know, there's a, a lot of questions about the the state we're in with COVID and the climate and you know, does art matter anymore? I think it absolutely does. I think stories matter. And I think by expressing yourself, however you do that, in my case, it's writing. And in my students' case, it's writing. You, you learn to hear the sound of your own voice. You learn to hear what matters to you. Um, but I do think as a kid, because my dad was such a tyrant, you know, I was really socialized to, to not even know how I felt, you know, to not even know whether something felt good or bad. And so that was just a long process. Um, and I think my time in the natural world and then my writing about my time in the natural world was an, you know, an incremental set of lessons in believing my own thoughts and feelings and, um, my own ability to, to know, um, what I'm doing here or how to make a meaningful life. Uh, tell me a little bit more about your students. Uh, do, do they do they come in wondering if their story matters? Do, is that something you'd have to talk to them about? Uh, oh, absolutely. I mean, all of them, no matter where they're from. I think, you know, I think doubt is a writer's constant state. I, you know, I don't know very many who that isn't true about. And if it is, you know, they might be kind of jerks. <laughs> <laughs> I think it goes with the territory, you know, but I also think, um, you know, I think, you know, we lost Barry Lopez 
this year, and he was such a big influence on me, has been my whole life. And he always said, we're pattern makers. We writers or we artists are pattern makers. And if our patterns are beautiful and true enough, they'll have the power to bring a person for whom the world has become chaotic and disorganized up from their knees and back to life. And I think about that every day. I think about that quote every day um, because I'm always looking for pattern and structure in my own work. But I also think so many of my students, especially the ones who have come from violent or chaotic places in their early lives, which a lot of them have, um, I think they're looking for pattern. They're looking for a, 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 a beautiful pattern, you know, in which to tell their story. I mean, that's just one way to think about a novel or to think about short stories. And I think, you know, that patterning, that taking chaos and, and, and making it beautiful somehow with language, you know, I think that's a, I think it's like a miracle and a gift and an opportunity and a privilege and an honor, you know, and so that's what I'm trying to help them do. I'm trying to help them find the form that will make their story tellable. How did you, how did you navigate that as a young writer? I guess you, you come out with a, you have to have some ambition, right? To even go into this because it's difficult to get your, your work out there. Um, how did you navigate those things as a young writer? Well, I, you know, this sounds like a, a circular conversation, but I always just trust the natural world. So for me, my, my process of writing, this has been true since the beginning. I move through the world trying to pay really strict attention to the things that arrest my attention. And for me, because I spend so much time outside, these are often natural world things, right? A seal or we saw we were, I'm actually in right at this moment in, in, at the end of Cape Cod, and we saw these crazy sunfish yesterday. We were out in a little boat, you know, so that was just a thing that arrested my attention. Um, but whatever it is, you know, whether it's the color of the light on the river or whether it's the sun coming through the aspen trees or whether it's a funny T-shirt in a window or whether it's a conversation overheard in a coffee shop, it doesn't matter, and it doesn't have to be the natural world. It's just where I am mostly. But I collect those things. I call them glimmers kind of a kind of a weak word but i that's what i've been calling them it's the basis of my teaching and i call them glimmers and i collect them and i put them in my computer and i have you know tens of thousands of these glimmers in my computer and then when i have to have time to write i just kind of paw through them and see which ones want to come out and which ones might want to stick together and make a story together and like you see that's the pattern making like it's like taking these taking these good quality raw materials. I tell my students it's like going to the farmer's market, getting a whole bunch of organic vegetables, and then when you come home, you can hardly screw up the soup because you've got all your, all your good organic vegetables, you've got all your good glimmers, and then you see which ones want to go together. And the reason that I do it that way rather than like a more traditional outline or thinking about the aboutness of the story, the reason I do it with the glimmers is because I want to invite my subconscious into the process you know i want to invite surprise into the process like what happens if i put orcas and fruit bats into the same story and sometimes amazing things happen you know and so that is my method and that's how i did it starting out um a story of mine which is called the best friend you never had which um 
wound up in, in Best American Short Stories of the Century. It's a story I'm really proud of. I wrote it when I was quite young. Um, that is all glimmers. It's just all these little pieces of a couple of years that I was living in Oakland, California, stuck together. And and it made the story that wound up in this anthology because I think there's authentic, authenticity in um, in letting you know, letting letting your glimmers or letting the pieces of the world that were meaningful to you assemble themselves without the writer over controlling them. Let's take another break. Um, we're talking with Pam Houston, uh, the writer, um, and uh, she is author of uh, several books. Uh, the memoir Deep Creek, Finding Hope in the High Country. Uh, two novels, Contents May Have Shifted and Sight Town. Two collections of short stories, Cowboys Are My Weakness and Waltz and the Cat. Collection of essays, a little more about me. And uh, the latest is uh, a series of letters between Pam Houston and A.B. Irvine. It's uh, collected uh, by Tory House Press in the book Airmail, Letters of Politics and Pandemics in Place. And Pam Houston is coming to Logan for an event tomorrow evening, uh, 7 to 9. This is for the Stokes Nature Center, their Writers in the Woods series. And uh, Pam Houston will be at the Stokes Nature Center, which is up uh, Logan Canyon. Um, that uh, will be happening 7 to 9 p.m. tomorrow. And uh, Pam Houston will be in conversation with UPR's Ellis Julin. The event is free. It's outside. And you can purchase a copy of Deep Creek uh, there. And we'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and Utah State Historical Society, presenting their annual conference, Public Health and the Common Good. Virtual presentations begin September 20th. Details at history.utah.gov. This is Dan Johnson for Bringing More to Life. There are 53 million family caregivers in the U.S., and they provide 37 billion hours of unpaid care for their loved ones. That's worth $470 billion, which is more than all out-of-pocket spending on U.S. health care. The typical caregiver reports high stress from this unpaid role. Respite is a service that allows caregivers to take a break while someone stays with their loved ones. Respite can reduce caregiver burnout and keep loved ones in their home longer. Yet only 14% of caregivers report they have used respite services. Encourage the caregivers you know to take advantage of respite through programs like RSVP. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Retired and Senior Volunteer Program of Cache and Rich Counties, bolstering social support and well-being of aging adults and family caregivers. Information at sunshineterrace.org slash RSVP. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking uh, today with uh, the writer Pam Houston. And she'll be in Logan for an event for the Stokes Nature Center tomorrow evening, 7 to 9. It's a free event. Everyone's invited. Uh, the address for Stokes Nature Center is 2696 East Highway 89. That's uh, just up Logan Canyon. And admission is free for this event. It'll be held outside. Um, but restrooms will be available at the uh, center. Uh, they do say that uh, when you're inside the center, you should wear a mask at the event is outside. And uh, Pam Houston will be uh, in conversation with UPR's Ellis Julin at that event. Again, tomorrow evening, 7 to 9, at the Stokes Nature Center, up, uh, Logan uh, Canyon. Uh, so, Pam Houston, uh, let me just read this uh, from you. This is from uh, Deep Creek. 
You say, motion improves any day for me. The farther, the faster, the better. On a plane, a boat, dog sled, a car, back of a horse, a bus, pair of skis, in a cabbage wagon, hoofing it down a trail, and my well-worn hiking boots. Stillness, on the other hand, makes me very nervous. That surprises me a little bit. I guess I have a stereotypical view of you, uh, you know, out on your ranch, uh, meditating, uh, you know, out in the out in the <laughs> wilderness, uh, being comfortable, being still. Uh, it resonates with me. Kind of this, it, it is difficult. There are difficulties being still. Uh, I wonder if you talk about this juxtaposition. Yeah. Well. I think that paragraph goes on to say, like, whatever improvements I have made in the ability to be still department, I owe to my ranch, you know, um, because it's such a wonderful place to sit. But I am I'm not good at stillness. I'm a lousy meditator. I always say, you know, oh, I can do walking meditation, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Um, uh, but um, but I. I do believe, I mean, for one thing, the, the the ranch is so physically challenging. You know, at certain times of year, it's almost impossible. At certain times of year, it takes three hours to dig to the barn. Now, with climate, it's a little different. You know, it's, it's, it's gotten a little easier to winter at the ranch um, because of climate change. Uh, then, of course, we worry about fires on the other side. But but, you know, one of the things about the ranch is it's so physically demanding. I have about 20 animals, roughly, between the sheep and the horses and the donkeys and the chickens and the dogs. Um, and so just getting them cared for and getting the things that break at the ranch fixed, you know, all of that leads to wanting to sit on the porch for an hour and look at the sunset, whereas in a, a more academic life, for instance, when I'm out at UC Davis teaching and I'm using my brain all day, um, it, it, it's not so necessary, you know, to really be still and take a, a rest. But if you have an idea of me as like a peaceful meditator, you, you have the wrong idea. <laughs> because I wish I were. I wish I had grown into that. I have learned many things in my life, and I am getting a tiny bit better at sitting still, but I, it's just not, you know, I'm, I'm hungry for experience, and I'm hungry, as you read, to be moving through a landscape, um, especially, you know, on a horse or in a boat or on a dog sled and seeing and seeing places I haven't seen. And that, that has, the ranch has not cured me of that. It's wonderful to have both. It's wonderful to have a place I can be still that I'm in love with. And then it's also still wonderful for me to go and explore. And I say that, you know, after being home a lot in the last two years, like, like many of us have been, you know, um, I'm, I'm hungry to go explore now. Uh, tell me about that. How was that? Um, uh, kind of a long stretch during the middle of COVID where the travel that you loved was, I guess, probably at a certain point cut back to zero. Yeah, I didn't really go anywhere in 2020 at all. Um, I I drove down to Santa Fe occasionally, which isn't that far. Um, It's about four hours from uh, Creed, and I have um, 
an older friend there that I that was really isolated. So I would go down and sleep in her driveway in my car and we would eat on her porch like 10 feet apart. <laughs> and I did that a lot, load up on groceries and go back to Creed. But other than that, I didn't go anywhere in 2020. Um, and, you know, it was, I mean, I felt very privileged. I felt very lucky. My My teaching went online, all of it. So I didn't really lose any income. And I was able to be home, and it had been many years since I had been at the ranch every single day in a year, you know, to see, like, when do the bluebirds come back? When do the wild iris come up? Um, You know, when does the first leaf change? Um, You know, when is the first snow? All of that. You know, I was there when the sheep got sheared. I was there when the hay arrived. I was there. I was there for every single ranch rite of passage in that year and it was good to do that because i've been working a lot and traveling a lot prior to covid and so i hadn't gotten to do that in a long time so it really was like a deep reconnection with the ranch so connections with others uh, that that changed during during the pandemic right you you had to take precautions uh, you know even though you were able to see your friend um for example, exchanged letters with Amy Irvine. You know, I think this is old-fashioned mail, right? Um, no, we actually was this email. We sent them. We sent them by email. Okay. You know, okay. The, the the picture on the cover are the crows carrying our letters back and forth across the continental divide, but or the ravens. But um, but no, we did send them by email because there was a time limit on it. But we but we didn't write them as emails. We wrote them as letters you know, offline and loaded them, which is just to say they were taken seriously as letters. Mm. You know, they weren't just dashing off emails. But, yeah, Amy and I were asked by Orion Magazine to write to each other for a series they were doing called um, Together Apart, where two writers who did not know each other were asked to write letters. And we were the first pair in the series. And we started to write letters to each other. Amy lives on the other side of the Continental Divide from Creed in Norwood, Colorado. And um, by the time we got our 3,500 words written for Orion, we were forging a friendship and establishing a relationship and a kind of a sisterhood. And so we decided to just keep writing. And we weren't really writing at the beginning with a book in mind, but we were definitely finding connection and holding each other together and, you know, speculating about what the world was going to look like and what COVID was going to mean for so many things, including the environment, because we're both environmentalists um, in these letters. And then all of a sudden we had 35,000 words. And that was when we thought, hey, maybe this is a book. And that was when we approached Tory House Press. I want to read this. Uh, this is from the early in the book, one of the early letters, uh, March, end of March 2020. So the very beginning of the pandemic. And uh, this is what you wrote. For all the suffering, heartache, grief, and economic catastrophe this virus will cause, I can't help but wonder what reevaluation of our priorities might come out of it. Um, so what do you think? More than a year later, uh, have there been some lessons learned on, on, on your part or that we collectively may maybe have learned or you hope we do? Well, 
you know, it's hard to say. It feels like it's sort of going in two directions at once. I mean, one thing we learned is that we can work from home, and I think that will become increasingly important, you know, as fossil fuels diminish. I think those were good lessons, you know. Um, I miss the classroom, and I'll be in it in a few weeks back at UC Davis, and I'll be glad for that. But I think there's a lot of commuting, which can become telecommuting, and I think that can only help the general state of the world. Um, But I also think we learned how many people don't believe in science, and I think that was a hard lesson of the pandemic. I know for myself what I learned was, um, was how much to appreciate things that I may have been taking a little for granted before the pandemic, you know, you know, when you get, when your life gets really busy, um, you tend to not notice, you know, how wonderful it is to sit down to a dinner with four of your closest friends or how wonderful it is to see the ocean, you know, just to name one thing, Mm. to be able to just get on a plane and go see the ocean or, or to, um, you know, to go to hear live music. You know, these things that we, I can remember on the weekend of March 6, 2020, I was in Moab, in fact, with a private writing group, and I had a reading down there at Back of Beyond, and we were kind of giggling. We were like, oh, is this the last time we're going to ever get to eat in a restaurant? Ha ha. (laughs) And then it was. It actually was. And, um, and I think, you know, I think I do. I think I'm full of appreciation for getting to do those things now and uh, whatever it is. And, and, you know, I'm still being very cautious and I'm still masking inside, you know, Uh, I, I don't think that we're out of it, but I do think, you know, being vaccinated, getting together with friends, the things that I've been able to do. I'm re- I really, really actively value them. And I think a lot of other people do, too. I'm curious about the uh, politics of COVID. This is not only of, you know, a shared public health crisis. It's uh, political. Um, so Colorado is a blue state, but I'm imagining where you are. It's uh, possibly, a, a, I'm guessing, a red county. Uh, so... Yeah. How have you and your neighbors navigated uh, potential differences on views about COVID? Well, it hasn't been great, <laughs> frankly, <laughs> since you asked. I mean, um, I was called a name every time I went into the post office with a mask on during COVID. So I just stopped getting my mail. Um, and I... There was very little masking and very, um, I will say we had um, a young man named Isaac Patankin who was in charge of the vaccine rollout in Creed. He happens to be Mandy Patankin's son, (laughs) for what that's worth. Um, But he took this on because he has a a degree in public health. And we have like 77% vaccination rate in our county or something super high. He was like a miracle worker um, because he got people who, you know, were skeptical to get vaccinated. So that was a total creed success. Also this summer, our theater, our local theater um, 
the Creed Repertory Theater, had an entirely outside season. And they were actually written up in the New York Times for it. Um, and so that was wonderful to have the theater back after not having it in 2020. But it was tough during the real pandemic. And another reason I went to Santa Fe to see my friend was also to get groceries because in Santa Fe, everybody masked in the grocery store, you know, and you just felt very safe. Um, and that was not the case in Creed. I want to follow up, uh, Mr. Patinkin, uh, winning over skeptics uh, on vaccinations. How how did he do that? I don't know if you know. I don't know. I, I mean, I know that just personally when I got my shots, he texted me about a thousand times. Not that I was a skeptic. I was completely eager to get vaccinated. But he was just like he reminded people, you know, and he I mean, he and they made videos like they made, you know, like funny videos, him and his crew. It was like a miracle. I mean, honestly, like, you know, I would have thought we would have had very low vaccination rate. In fact, we have, I think, the highest vaccination rate in the state. And that's all about Isaac Patankin. <laughs> wow. Honestly. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Uh, coming down to the end of the conversation, I want to uh, want to have you talk about this. I'll, this is from Airmail. Uh, talking about, I guess you could you could put it under the heading of activism. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll just read what you wrote. Trying to stay safe, trying to be invisible, can only lead to despair. The only time I feel really okay anymore is when I'm fighting for the things I love, whether it's a student's manuscript or protection for wolves and grizzly bears. Battling for a better world is the only occupation now, and you say it's women's turn to lead the charge, maybe with a few good men in tow. So... The only time I feel okay anymore is when I'm fighting for the things I, I love. Yeah. True. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, I, I was just talking the other morning with the lady who was making my coffee, and there, there was Fleetwood Mac playing in the background. Um, and I said to her, every time I hear these mu- this music, I think about how naive we were and how sweet the world seemed when these songs came out. And, but maybe, maybe, maybe I, maybe the fact that I was so naive is how we got to all this trouble, you know? And she said, I know exactly what you mean. She said, I don't ever want to pretend, you know, anymore. I don't ever want to be in denial, but we also have to find a way to find joy in the midst of all the things that are, that we're facing, you know? And, and that's kind of, how I feel, you know, I, I, um, I'm, I want to fight for the rights of women. I want to fight for the rights of the earth. That seems like the same battle to me. And what does that mean? What does fighting mean to me? Well, to me, it means every time someone asks me to speak, I talk a little bit about the climate catastrophe, or I talk a little bit about, um, what's happening in Texas with, women's rights, or I talk a little bit about the voices of my students um, from Native communities or from other non-white communities that need to be elevated, and those stories need to be told. You know, Toni Morrison said, you know, if you find yourself with a little power, you reach down and you pull somebody else up, and so I have just a little bit of power. I'm a writer in America, um, and they like me in the West. So in that context, I have a little bit of power. So I want to be sure I'm always reaching and pulling somebody else up. But I also, you know, I'm ready to fight in 2022. I'm ready to fight in 2024. 
whatever that means. You know, I, I have I have a moderate sized platform and I want to use it to try to help um, to try to help the earth. Well, we're at the end of our hour. Uh, Pam Houston is author of Deep Creek, Finding Hope in High Country. The latest uh, book is Airmail, Letters of Politics, Pandemics, and Place, the result of correspondence between Pam Houston and Amy Irvine. Uh, Pam Houston, author of many other books. Uh, and she's coming to Logan for the Riders in the Woods series for the Stokes Nature Center. That is tomorrow evening, 7 to 9 p.m. at the Stokes Nature Center, which is 2696 East Highway 89. It's up uh, slightly up Logan Canyon. Uh, She'll be in conversation at that event with UPR's Ellis Julin. The event is free. It's outside, and you can purchase a copy of Deep Creek there. Um, Pam Houston, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tom. Always a pleasure. Thanks so much, and uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah. Support for Utah Public Radio comes from listeners like you and S.E. Needham Jewelers, serving Utah since 1896, offering diamond engagement rings, anniversary bands, gemstone, and diamond jewelry. 141 North Main Street in Logan. Information at seneedham.com. Coming up next, we have Living on Earth, followed by Climate One at 11 and BBC programming beginning at noon. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org.